BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's one of our friends we go to on all this tech stuff because I don't understand it. He explains it so well. Even I understand it. He's gotten good at it, too. You'll see him all over network TV, print, media, and podcasts like this one right here. James Arnowski, great to have you back, my friend. Thanks for having me. He's a senior contributor with Young Voices, good friend of ours. You've been all over the place on this stuff. Two things I want to talk about. Let's start with AI, though, because... This has been up in your wheelhouse with this tech stuff you cover. Here's the thing with AI, though. I think we need to harp on the actual nomenclature of AI, Mm -hmm. because I think when you don't get that right, you wind up all over the place on what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence is what AI stands for. A souped up search engine is not artificial intelligence. It is not Skynet. It's not going to take over the Internet. Those two things are different, and yet almost all the news media coverage I see, almost all the tech coverage I see, and all those Congress critters sitting on those dioceses, they're using that interchangeably to make policy. you got to start there with the differences between those two things, and then that's how you wind up with this policy being so bad right off the go. Nothing good's going to come out of this if we don't get this nomenclature correct, right? Oh, no, you're absolutely right there, Andrew. I think that the the we have not started off with our best foot forward when it comes to talking about AI. Um, I think that we use the term artificial intelligence and it's this very broad and nebulous term and it means a lot of things. And I think that because of that, we are kind of letting the conversation get distracted by unnecessary things or things that are unrealistic. I keep thinking back to when this was really kicking off, there was a letter that was signed by 350 different industry leaders and blah, 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 all about how AI needs to be taken seriously on the same level as nuclear war and, and you know, uh, ultimate waste and despair. And it's definitely something that, you know, 
while is possible, is extraordinarily, extraordinarily unlikely, and the rhetoric just does not make any sense in terms of meeting the moment for where we're at on this technology. Um, it's a powerful tool. Uh, it's obviously not all sunshines and roses, but it's also not, to your point, Terminator fanfic, uh, end of the world kind of scenarios either. Um, I think that that's a massive mistake. I think AI, uh, one thing that people don't realize is that it's been getting utilized for the last 20 years easily, I would say. Um, in different ways that are more internal facing. And now it's just that we've finally gotten the technology to be so promising and so powerful that we can actually start experimenting with how to put it in a more external facing role and interacting with the end user. And there, there are some really powerful things that can come out of that that are great for us as a society. So um, I wish that we would focus more on these nuanced conversations than just saying, AI, you know, uh, is going to kill people or it's going to do all these things that um, are not necessarily likely or probable for that matter. Yeah, James Arnowski joining us. This is why I like to talk to you about this, because you, you, you're you just a sadist. You just love punishment. You actually watch these hearings and all this stuff. The other side of this and why this has gotten to be a bit of a mess, though, is the big tech versus government thing. And AI is an offshoot of that. And it's actually becoming one of the main offshoots of that ongoing struggle. This is its own cottage industry, if for lack of a better term. There's a lot of money in this. You've been on this program before. You've talked about the money that Facebook and Google and these companies are spending on lobbying. They want a return on that investment. Part of the story here, though, is this is big business for and against, and it's big business for the government because it's more expansion of government regulatory policy. That's kind of the side part of why this is getting bigger and messier and louder that we're not really talking about. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think um, you think back to the first major hearing about AI where they brought in Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, um, the company that powers ChatGPT, the internet sensation uh, that kind of sparked the whole AI conversation, if you will, in many ways. Um, you know, he was sitting there advocating in front of Congress for licensing requirements for uh, powerful AI models. And I think that that's something that while he might genuinely believe in the and some of the downsides of the technology and the harms and all that, um, it's also impossible to ignore that those same proposals would position his company quite nicely uh, to benefit from a licensing regime because they're already there. Uh, and new entrants might not so easily be able to get into such a licensing regime, uh, you know, so easily. And I think that that's, that's bad. I think that that's cronyism and corporatism in ways that we don't want to be supporting. We support free market ways. We want to go and see um, this technology get supported, not stifled. And when you have members of Congress leaning into that, or, you know, I think the funnier thing from that particular hearing was, uh, it was Chairman Durbin saying like, oh, this is so historical that we have a, a business industry coming to us and asking and begging us to regulate them. I'm like, since when? That's like any day that ends in why everybody is going and lobbying for, uh, you know, something that benefits them in some rhyme or fashion. Uh, it's not unique to AI companies. Get out of here. Um, but no, it's very important in terms of the broader development of the technology that, you know, the United States gets the regulation, if any. Um, right. And I think right now, in part because of the inability to have a responsible and nuanced conversation around the technology, we're getting stuck with these very high, broad brush proposals that would go and actually encapsulate a lot of things uh, that are not just in, you know, the chat GPT, if you will, um, and that would actually be not so great. So I think that we need to do a better job of actually breaking down away from AI into more specific use cases and regulating narrowly tailored solutions around the harms that are being clearly identified there. And that's something that I think that we need to do a better job about. Yeah, James Janowski joining us. In your, you were writing in the New York Post about AI. You brought up China 
you talked about the fact that, you know, part of the policy thing is it's one thing to be anti-China and China's policy. And we know about the dictatorship in China and all that. No, you don't want those kind of folks getting a technological advantage. But you'd warned that we got to be careful having policy just in the name of, you know, anti-China stuff where you don't want to hamstring ourselves. It's interesting you bring that up, though, because China has way more control over their populace and over the technology of their populace than we're ever going to have in America. And they still can't make really strict restrictions on this stuff work. There's a lesson there in this, isn't it? As we go to try to do regulations like, look, they're trying to keep kids off video games. They can't do it. They can't enforce it. And they've got almost a complete dictatorship. They're trying to control AI development and they can't control it because people are figuring this out and the open source is getting out there. There really is lessons to learn in the relationship of how China's doing this and applying them to how we do it, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that the takeaway, and I think some Americans are making this mistake where they go and they point at China and think that that's a good thing. I'm like, especially in the context of video games and how they're handling, uh, you know, smartphone technology more broadly speaking right now, there was a recent proposal that they're considering to try to uh, limit kids access to smartphones to only a couple hours a day. Um, I think there's one lesson that people can learn. It's that, you know, people kind of get around all those controls. Um, speaking as a kid who had that, that control debate with my mom for years growing up. I assure you, we will find a way if we have the will. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I think is underappreciated. And I also think that at least when it comes to those proposals too, it, you've got to be careful, really careful because, you know, some people go and look at that and they want to cheer it on. But I hope they realize too, that the only way that it works is that China has an extraordinary amount of control over their population in ways that are very scary. And that's the only way they can enforce those particular rules in the ways that they want it to, right? So it's like, oh, you know, for kids getting off of video games, what do they do? They require you to go and submit facial scans, which means that the government has your facial data for everybody in the country. And then they can go and link to you online. And that's actually a really severe threat. Online anonymity is actually a great thing for many reasons. It protects us against prosecution from the government in some ways. And I think that we gotta be very careful about just simply chasing proposals because we wanna protect children. I think that that's a noble goal. I want to go and help kids be safer when they're operating in an online ecosystem, but that requires being pragmatic and understanding in terms of what kinds of proposals we should be putting forward to help better prepare our children for operating in an online ecosystem. James Arnowski joining us. This brings us to some breaking news we had as we started to prepare for this program. Uh, President Biden has issued an executive order. The title of the executive order is, and I'm quoting here, addressing United States investments in certain national security technologies and products in countries of concern. They said countries of concern, but when you scroll down to the bottom of the White House page here, the annex says the countries of concern are China, Hong Kong, and Macau. This is a China executive order. Let's call it what it is. You tipped me on this and I hadn't remembered this, they're using what's called the IEE, IEEPA government acronyms, National Emergency Act, the International Emergency Economics Power Act. I halfway remembered it, and then you clued me up. This is something they talked about using during the TikTok ban debates. This was some stuff they talked about this. Now they're using it for this other technology. We get the big buzzwords of national security, sensitive technology, AI is going to make an appearance when they have a hearing on this. You watch. It's going to be that kind of stuff. Yep. What was your read on this executive order and how it's kind of a continuation of the running argument we're already having over technology? Yeah, I think that, you know, this was an order that was kind of long in the making and, and predictable and unsurprising that it dropped. I mean, this is just building on uh, actually one area where 
uh, the current administration and the past administration were actually quite hard on China um, in ways that I don't think many people realize. So uh, the administration's already put export controls on certain kinds of chip technology to China. This seems to go and further enhance that. And it's all done underneath the guise of national security. And the problem, at least for me at face value with the national security argument particularly, because we'll see this coming up again in the fall when it comes to reauthorizing Section 702 of FISA, uh, is that it's going to be done unargued underneath national security grounds. And I think that it's important to recognize that national security is obviously important. I think that uh, a lot of Americans would want their country to be kept safe from threats that are domestic and abroad. Um, but... Uh, where's the line in, in the name of that goal, right? And when does that start, you know, encroaching on other kinds of protections that might be there, at least in the context of FISA? Um, I think that what this national security lens might be doing in this particular case is also serving as a backdrop to go and justify why you want to pursue very costly industrial policy like the CHIPS and Science Act that Congress passed last year, which awarded over $52 billion immediately for uh, you know chip manufacturers. And then it's going to cost an estimated $280 billion, I want to say, over the next 10 years um, in order to go and help increase America's competitiveness in this space. I think that you know, industrial policy has been pretty tricky. I don't think that it's had a great track record of success. Um, but I think that things like this go to try to, you know, serve as a backdrop to help bolster those efforts, too. Um, so I, I think that I'm pretty hesitant when I see something like this pop up. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. James Cernowski joining us. Our friend Steve Burnham over at Racket News, good friend of ours, disagrees with us a little bit on this, but I think it's worthy talking about one of the arguments he made. He pointed out, and he's going with the national security argument, he praises Biden on this. By the way, he's not a Biden supporter. This is a bipartisan thing. But I've seen other conservatives actually come out and be okay with this and folks on the right. And he pointed out that this is a combination. I'm going to quote from the piece here. We will link to it on the subsect notes. AI technology coupled with quantum technology deployed in places like in orbit, not just on the Internet, is a powerful way to break through some of our current systems. I don't disagree with all that, but this goes back to where we started this conversation. What's your definition of AI? What's your definition of quantum technology? What's your definition of delivery systems for this technology, which is the other part of AI nobody wants to talk about? You still have to deliver it, and it's still got to be a product, and how are you using that? 
this is all stuff in the future. I'm a little bit leery, and I can be talked into it, but I'm a little leery making policy like this on what stuff may develop into. I understand you want to be looking around the corner, but I can see some problems there, even though China, and I think China is an enemy and an adversary, and the Chinese government is somebody we need to treat thusly. I think it's prudent to pause there and go, well, wait a minute. We're not even sure what this technology is going to be. Should we slow down on something like this? Is that a fair position to have or where does it land with you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I can reckon again, I think that you're not wrong, that it's important to recognize where China is um, right now geopolitically um, in, in the conversation. And. Again, I, I just worry about it being the new red herring, if you will. You know, you think back to the 1950s and the Red Scare um, and using that to justify a lot of things. Uh, you know, you, you know, not that this is that, but, you know, you, you would see China all of a sudden becoming the new scapegoat to justify a lot of policy that might not otherwise go and uh, pass muster. So, again, I, I think that you have to be very careful about how you're creating it. And honestly, you know, the notion of, to your point of like looking into the future reading glass, I think, um, some people might claim that they're better at it uh, than others, but the reality is I think that we're all kind of along for the ride and, um, you know, we don't actually know. The future is not necessarily certain. We we don't have, like, when people talk about AI and that, you know, uh, doomsday terminator situation, you can't even get AI experts to agree on what the timeline like that looks like. You'll have some say 10 years, some say 20, 30 years, some say 50 years, some say 100 years. There's no consensus around any of it. So I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of understanding the capability and the timeline horizons so that we can make better informed decisions. I don't want to go and accidentally shutter off opportunities for development here because AI right now is projected to add about uh, 7% to global GDP over the next 10 years, I believe, if memory serves right. Um, and it will go and double workforce productivity, which these are massive benefits to the end consumer. And, you know, again, if we're doing proposals that have overly broad definitions for any of these technologies, we might be going and, you know, basically having us try to fight this race with both our legs tied uh, and hindering our ability to actually be the leader that we need to be. Because I'll tell you right now, it's not going to be Europe. Uh, Europe has an extremely aggressive regulatory regime that's going to discourage any kind of innovation and major investment in that space. And it's really coming down to the United States and China. And China, I think if there's one thing that we've learned about China, it's that they don't necessarily care about whatever rules that we set up and agree to with other countries, whatever. They're just going to do China. They're going to do their own thing. And that's a legitimate thing that you have to keep in the back of your mind. Um, you know, I think some people will go and overstate where China is at that. So I think that it's a, a little bit of a balancing act to understand that they want to be competitive. But um, yeah, I, I think that it's a fine conversation, but we need to be more more nuanced in how we're having that conversation right now. James Arnowski joining us. This dovetails to how we started this conversation. So here's a good way to end it. A lot of this is fear. People are people are worried about AI. They're worried about what the technology is going to do. You cover this. You also write about it in really well. You go on TV and explain it to folks. When you're looking at these headlines, because the headlines are designed to get emotion from us so we click on it or watch it or listen or whatever. So we're never going to get the fear part out of this conversation. When you're looking at the headlines, what are you looking for to get under the noise of it to, okay, this is something I need to look into, or this is just hot mess, or this is some tech bro that's trying to sell us something, or this is the government actually doing something that we need to pay attention to? What's your filters for the audience to start looking at the headlines and try to find a little bit better way of looking at this without that fear? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that you you kind of hit the nail on the head there where I, I kind of get dismayed when I see people just simply focusing on problems and not the promise of the technology. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of promise in AI technology. There's a great TEDx video that Saul Khan uh, from Khan Academy put out not too long ago, um, where he's talking about how he thinks he can use AI to basically create a super tutor for kids. Um, so that way they can get a better learning education process that goes and helps them learn how to get to the right answer rather than just being told whether they're right or wrong. So I think that that's that's a phenomenal thing, especially considering how much learning loss kids had during COVID. I think that there's a phenomenal opportunity there to try to close that gap and actually really create a system that empowers kids to be best positioned to succeed and actually learn the necessary skills that they need to do. But it's not just that. They, they can go and help you with the benign tasks like you know, schedule planning and looking at travel itineraries and helping navigate food allergies in your household. And on the massive side too, it can go and help with, uh, you know, cancer research and things of that nature. So I'm always looking for like, you know, people that are identifying what what are the new great things that people are doing with this technology. Uh, drones being used to deliver life-saving medication to people on remote rural islands, right? Um, things of that nature. The more you focus on trying to figure out like what people are doing with it, um, the better. Now, obviously, to your point, there's going to be some people who go and oversell what they're doing. Uh, there was a company in the UK that was recently coming under some scrutiny for that. Um, you know, thankfully, I don't think we've had anybody going to Sam Bankman-Fried levels of, of uh, trying to go and oversell what they have going on over there. But I think that, again, it's just about having a, a you know, an open mind to this whole thing here because it's easy to go and point out problems. It's it's a lot more difficult to look past that and find what's the promise here and actually focus on getting that to become the possible. So I think that, you know, again, you just look at as many resources as possible. Um, the thing that I always look at most first and foremost, too, is the government. You know, what are they trying to do with the thing that I wrote in The New York Post? It was about the FTC trying to regulate around speech, I think, in, indirectly. Um, that's problematic. So I think that, you know, again, always keep an eye on what government's trying to do, because in that space, they're trying to get control over these companies and make them acquiesce to things that the government wants. And I think that that would leave us all worse off. Yeah, James Arnowski, we love talking to you about this stuff. You break it down well, sir. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, because I'm telling you right now, I'm going to keep having you back on as much as I can, because this stuff's just going to get more and more needed to be explained, which is a bad way of saying it, but you knew exactly what I meant, because I'm just a good communicator like that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I'm happy to come and talk anytime with you guys about tech issues. I think that uh, they're going to become increasingly prevalent, especially as we get closer to uh, an election season where I'm sure it will certainly be part of the conversation. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, people can follow me on Twitter at James C's or actually, sorry, I said that wrong. They can follow me on X now. <laughs> Thank you, Elon Musk. Yet again, uh, they can follow me on X at James CZ 19, where I will do all the zeding or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing these days over there. Um, and also, I would I would strongly encourage your listeners to always listen, uh, follow Young Voices uh, on X as well. Uh, at Young Voices Org, they're a great organization. They've I would I would not be remotely where I am today without them. So those are the two places that I would uh, encourage people to follow up. Nor would I. They would cringe at the way we're doing our read right at the moment because we're not exactly lighting it up today, buddy. But you do good work, sir. We will talk to you again, James Ernowski. Follow him, and we'll talk again soon, my friend. Thanks. Yes, sir.
Oh, I'm back to her tell. Okay, she's a favorite. She's been around. You've heard her podcast, The Excellent District of Conservation. You make sure to check that out. Advertised right here on Herd Tell. Gabriella Hoffman's back with your bio is ridiculous. I'm not even going to try, but you, you do everything from you can photograph things, you video <laughs> things, you write things, you go places and talk to people. Does that pretty much cover it all? That's actually a perfect cap of what I do because that's what I feel like I want my accomplishments to be. If I'm anything like I'm doing something, I'm not just yakking and talking. So I appreciate you highlighting the fact that I actually do stuff, which I do. Um, it looks like a lot of fun and I'm, I'm moseying and, you know, talking to cool people, seeing cool things, but there's a lot of work that goes into it behind the scenes. So I appreciate you highlighting that, Andrew, and good to be back. Yeah, trust me, if you want to hire her to do some photography, she'll be all over that compared to some of the other stuff she's got to work on. <laughs> uh, part of going all over the place is you have to do a lot of travel, and because you are in the D.C. metro area, that means you fly out of D.C. back and forth. That I do. You just wrote a piece for D.C. Journal. Okay, this is going to get in the weeds a little bit, but I actually like this stuff because I'm an aviation nerd. Um, <laughs> let's start with the basics, though. For people that aren't familiar with D.C., there's more than one airport. And there's mm -hmm. a really old regulation involved here. Just kind of give us the background on what the perimeter rule is. This is not a fence around the airport. Yeah. This is something that's moved around what it is and how it affects the two airports in our nation's capital that everybody should visit, by the way. But this kind of gets in the way of if you're trying to find a direct flight. Yeah, I'll definitely jump into the aspects, the historical context. But to be, I think people misconstrue supporting expanding the perimeter limits here or adding more long haul flights with being anti Dulles. I'm not against Dulles International. I have to fly out of Dulles next month when I go to Alaska because it actually in the rare instance here was offering a better deal in terms of my flight, only one layover connection to Alaska. Alaska is a very far place. I don't expect DC to have a direct connection, direct flight rather to uh, Alaska from here anytime soon. So Dulles is a great compromise. It worked out for me there and it's great for international flights, but I live maybe about 20, 25 minutes from DCA and personally speaking, it is much easier to commute to DCA. And I think I can speak for most people who live in the immediate DC area suburbs as well. To go to Dulles is a bit of a hike. It could be 45 minutes if you're lucky, an hour, hour and a half. If you time it really well, you can get there within a reasonable time. But if you're doing a lower 48 domestic flight and you wanna go, let's say to Salt Lake City, which I sometimes do, I go frequently out West. I think even Montana would be great to have, you know, a direct connection to instead of going to Atlanta and then going up to Montana, I could go rather a straight shoot or, or Minneapolis, what have you. Los Angeles, San Diego, I'm about to go to San Diego soon and I have to do a connecting flight in the South. Nothing wrong with being in the South. I love going through Delta, you know, obviously, but I could save time, I could save money I can emit fewer carbon emissions and get to my destination quicker if I can have more offerings to go directly. And I think the reasoning why we're seeing this debate over reforming the perimeter rule to go beyond 1,250 miles is because other passengers like me have traveled a lot. Um, lawmakers have also, it personally affects a lot of lawmakers. And they realize that there's something hampering their ability to have direct flights from Texas, from Salt Lake City, from California, what have you, because of a longstanding but reformed kind of amended provision uh, from 1966, which is the perimeter rule, which first put in place that no flights, no beyond perimeter flights could from DCA could exceed 650 miles. Then in 1986, they amended it to 1,250 miles. No, nothing can exceed beyond perimeter with the exception of 12, or I'm sorry, with the exception of 20 flights, largely benefiting American and United. I think Delta and a few others have a few of those exemptions, but 
American and United primarily benefit from this. And when we're talking at a macro level, you're seeing what airlines are championing this kind of reform. Delta Airlines wants to have more long haul nonstop flights, a reasonable position. United and American believe that that's going to infringe on their hub status territory, their dominance in DCA. And it won't. <laughs> that's a really misguided thinking. They've done this at other airports when Houston uh, Hobby Airport had this proposal. They had similarly fear mongered that Delta was going to take their dominance and ruin things, but actually it benefited everyone. And, and United benefited even with Delta having more um, expansion in that specific airport. That's a great case study. But DC has grown even as this perimeter rule has been held and, and unchanged for the better part of, you know, almost 40 years now, if we're talking about the most recent revision, even though there has been proposals. And the DC metro area, Dulles and DCA, both areas have expanded tremendously. We have seen huge population surges. I'm a transplant to the region. I'm one of these people who has moved to the area. I like flying from either, but I've primarily flown out of DCA, like I said, because it's far more convenient. The prices are demonstrably cheaper. And customers and, and others and, and people who like efficiency and innovation and having up-to-date transportation, we scratch our heads here when we see, you know, expanded metro lines to go to Dulles. We see improvements, maybe necessary improvements in transportation, except for DCA itself. There's this reluctance to modernize DCA, especially with this permit rule, per perimeter rule, because it could be maybe the with respect to lawmaker opposition to this locally, especially here, we've seen lawmakers, largely Democrats from Virginia, Maryland, and even West Virginia signal their disapproval of reforming this because they view that Dulles is going to lose out on competition, that DCA needs to be insulated. It needs to be a regional hub airport, not a long haul flight airport. Again, we have 20 exempted flights that go long haul direct to the Western United States. So this kind of protectionism is really outdated and doesn't you know, adhere to the demands of the region. DCA had an expansion of $1 billion. It can easily accommodate more people. Uh, I've noticed in my recent travels, I can get through TSA quicker. With these new additions, I have largely no interruptions or delays. Just in my personal experience, not for everyone, of course, people have different opinions. Flying has been kind of chaotic these last few months, especially with summer and weather patterns. But I have had far better of an experience since these new improvements have been made, personally speaking, and I think a lot of passengers have, but people are largely unaware of this restriction in place, and they feel it is time for Congress to kind of modernize this rule. DCA is not going to lose out on anything. Dulles is not going to lose out on anything. It's just allowing for more competition, and if this were to be reformed, but I don't know if the chances look promising, and, and we could go into what has been moving in Congress this week because it has been making some movement and unfortunately not advancing as much as we'd like it to be. And um, it, it's just a reasonable position. Congress has the authority to change the rule here because unlike other airport authorities, the MWAA, Metropolitan Washington Aviation Authority, it was created by Congress. So it's, you know, falls on the sword of Congress and it's not really a private independent entity. So Congress has to weigh in here to do this. But that's kind of a big picture overview of, you know, this kind of faulty protectionist thing to keep Dulles, the long haul airport rather, and, and kind of strangulate DCA as just like this regional airport status, which it doesn't need to be. And we can kind of go into the weeds more about, you know, their concerns, what will it do for customers, how will it affect the local economy? I'm happy to discuss that more with you, Andrew, but this is kind of 
what it really breaks down to, and it's purposely confusing because the people who want to maintain this don't want you to know that this is the case in any polling that's been done has suggested that local DC area residents actually would be on board with adding more long haul flights too. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. People are like, well, this is, sounds like a regional issue. Here's the problem. This is Washington, D.C. This is our national capital. Uh, so this is an international destination. This is a national destination. Just the amount of the federal bureaucracy that because of the nature of their jobs has to travel. And then you put in all the other business. Thing. D.C. has grown so much. You're a resident there. So just as somebody that moved there and lives there and I visit there and I like it for about a day or two and then I'm ready to leave, frankly. <laughs> um, you have to have good transportation to our national capital. I'm a transportation guy by trade. That's what I started out doing. So when I go to D.C., it, it kind of, you know, I started, I take the train because where I'm located at, I can get on the train six hours in. It's I get in there first thing in the morning. I can be back middle of the night. That works well for me. I don't have to chase flights and stuff like that. D.C., and you can talk about this because Congress has so much oversight and the federal government has, you know, we could talk about jawboning and legislation and the, the federal government jawbones DC policy a lot in mm -hmm. all everything from street level on up. Just talk about the environment in DC that the way the federal government overrides things in DC like that, that's where a lot of this protectionism comes from. It's not all malicious. A lot of it's kind of, and DC people that live there will tell you it's almost like a benign neglect in some ways. Like they just don't That's think about these things. Yeah. You, you're kind of the locals are kind of the potted plant. They make sure it's watered every now and then, but they don't really take care of it. You hear that from DC people all the time. But this is our nation's capital. This we need an all of the above transportation network mm -hmm. to get in and out of there. And that goes to the heart of this. And it bumps up against that protectionism you were just talking about, doesn't it? And it's built into the system. It really is. And I've observed this a lot living here.
because they're they like you said they're selective about what they want to modernize um it, it depends who is maybe backing their campaign if we're talking lawmakers what bureaucrats are maybe getting some you know a uh, nice generous donation to their organization and dc can excel and, and continue to expand we've become a leader i mean people come here for business and I would say when you have pro-business governors, truly pro-business governors in place, certainly we want to attract more businesses here. And to keep up with that demand with some of these reforms coming down, you need to have a very robust transportation system. And plenty of people come here. People come here for, even with the crime kind of rising, despite that, you know, it's still a very sought after tourist destination. People love coming to the museums. They want to meet with their members of Congress. They want to see the history. They, maybe it's the gateway. It's their way to come see, you know, historical sites in Virginia, Maryland, you know, in the surrounding Chesapeake region, Chesapeake Bay region. They want to come here for vacation. They want to do business. And for me, I, I selected this place as my home base because I saw that there were opportunities here, not because of the government. I don't have any government contracts and, and contract work in the public sector. But for me, it's it's a good area to be in. And I love flying out of here. DCA gets me to almost every place directly with few exceptions. And as a, a local resident, I think it would be a boon to people locally. Like we can't hurt from, you know, having more business coming from people who decide to move here, travel here. And certainly, you know, there's always concerns about density and all that, but DC has a loss of people. And I think this metro area has lost people out to Carolinas, to Florida, Georgia, and other places. And we're trying to put in policies in place to not have uh, such a shedding of population there. But I think the DCA rule should reflect this. DCA policy should reflect this. They're not gonna lose out on anything. And I think they can meet the demand of more travelers and don't they want to have incentives for people to come here by offering more competition? Let's say they offer seven to 28 more long haul flights. When you have that competition, you can attract more customers who will say, you know what, I'm gonna save maybe 65, $75. That's approximately how much customers at DCA would save if we had more long haul flights offered. It could be even more if you're comparing it to Dulles. Dulles was just rated the most expensive domestic airport to travel from. And that should concern people when they're pushing dollars as this, you know, you have to go here for these long haul flights. Why would you go there when it takes about an hour more, depending upon where you are? Plus, it's the most expensive on average airport to travel from now when you can save $100, $150 per ticket and have a fraction of the commute. So it makes no, no sense for customers to have to go out of their way for this, especially when they have the Metro or Uber, or they can drive themselves to the airport or have a family member or someone drop them off. And it just, people are afraid of adjusting to the times. And this is where the fear of innovation, this could stem in or bleed into other different topics, but with respect to transportation, this hesitancy to be modern and to, you know, accommodate the needs of customers. It should be customers first. It shouldn't be protectionism first or fears over, you know, reason first. And and this is what has guided a lot of DC rulemaking and kind of regional rulemaking when you're looking at the counties, when you're looking at kind of the local governments here. Um, they're very behind and very resistant to change, good change that is needed that won't take away from what has made the DC metro area stand out and attract people here. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Here's the problem with transportation. So you talk about D.C. growing, expanding. D.C. is never going to stop expanding. And I don't no. mean in the political and policy-wise and expansion of government. The country's getting bigger. The government's got to get bigger. Like, we can talk about size of government. I'm just talking about 
proportionally, we have way more people. We're going to have a bigger government. More and more people are going to live in the metro area, even though the, the inner city part of it's probably losing a little population. The metro area is expanding and exploding. This is a problem that will proportionally get worse as time goes. You mentioned Dulles. Dulles went through Project Journey. It was a billion-dollar renovation, but it took them 10 years to get that approved, and then it took them more years to get it built. Whatever you're going to do with an airport, it takes a long time to do it. Infrastructure takes a long time to do it. And if you don't start now, then you're waiting another two, three, four years, then you're waiting another 10 years to build it, and it's really hard to build stuff in D.C. Just, just ask the people out at RFK trying to remodel that thing. It's yeah. hard to do stuff in D.C. So if, as long as you delay trying to stay ahead of the curve, it's going to compound the problem. Congress is going to vote this down. This isn't going to pass this session, it looks like, which means it's probably not going to pass not. until after. So you're looking at two or three years before this even goes before Congress again. You're looking at five or six years before you get plans approved. This stuff gets really out of control in a hurry because you got to stay in front of infrastructure. It just seems like this is an example of where D.C. has done a lot of good things. I know we talk about the swamp. D.C.'s done a lot of good things to make D.C. better. There's still things to work on. But you've got to stay ahead of things like the major infrastructures like an airport because it'll probably take you 10, 15, 20 years to get the next step built. And that's if you start today. And they're not. So that renovation, all of a sudden you're going to turn around and go, well, this renovation needs renovated again and you don't have anything new. (laughs) I mean, that's a little bit absurd, but that's what ha- transportation never stops moving. And if you don't stop growing with an area that's never going to stop growing because it's the head of the federal government, you're always going to be chasing it. And that's a part of the story, too, I think. That is why I'm of the opinion that we could benefit from having, let's say, kind of a business mindset with these kinds of things because it does entail public private partnerships. And in the private sector, these kind of innovations and improvements are streamlined a lot quicker. And in energy and conservation, I often talk about this with you, we have issues with permitting reform. And I bet it's the same with infrastructure, which I'm learning a little bit more with respect to this issue. But we seem to have a problem in the federal government with wanting to modernize things, wanting to streamline permitting processes. Because again, there's a fear, or maybe they're worried about you know the honeypot being drained or not having enough in revenue. And they don't know how to steward that money. Oftentimes, like they say, we have these grandiose plans, we have to do this, make this improvement. And then they're behind schedule, they're wasting more money, and it's not efficient. You have unhappy passengers, unhappy residents, and uh, bureaucrats who don't learn their lesson, and they get rewarded by being reelected again and then pushing the same policies over and over again. And like you alluded to, this should be a commonsensical thing. It's interesting. It's brought together people from both sides of the aisle in support of reforms. And similarly, it's brought together people from both sides of the aisle in opposition. We haven't seen that in a while, given how much gridlock is kind of dominating Congress today. But this is something, like I said, when people learn more about, they learn that this longstanding kind of restriction remains in place and that it's obstructing the airport's ability to continue innovating and accommodating more passengers and and really offering quality service. And then coupled that with it's preventing the airport from really maximizing their potential to retain and attract new customers. They're not thinking... Um, in in terms of increasing their bottom line here, like who is this servicing? Who's this benefiting? Like the the benefactors to the airport, the the appointees to the board, like if you're not servicing your customers, your customers are going to go elsewhere. Then they're going to be forced to go to Dulles or BWI because you're not offering competitive prices. So this protectionist kind of scheme and and policy left in place will keep DCA behind. I mean, what is it? Even I think uh, JFK and uh, 
LaGuardia even they have a similar permit rule perimeter rule. I think it's like 1,200 miles. Twelve, sorry, uh, twelve uh, one thousand five hundred miles. Um, it's a little more expansive, but and then DCA also has one of the few slot rules where I think you can't have more than sixty flights an hour. Um, maybe no more than 800 daily. And so I think it's the only airport across the country who has such a restriction in place. And I understand some people are like, well, it's going to cause a nuisance if you have more planes overhead. And I live in the airplane alley, so to speak. I don't really hear much of planes all day. Like I hear a few. And actually, a lot of people I've talked to have said I would prefer more flights overhearing, you know, military jets or, you know, the president flying over or something of that nature. So it doesn't really bother people. I understand maybe closer to DC proper, perhaps it does. But in the airplane alley in the outskirts of DC Metro, it really isn't a bother. And it's like, you know, 28 additional flights, you know, at the outset of it, if, if that even were to be achieved, it's so minuscule spread throughout the day whenever DCA is in operation. So you're not really going to hear it, especially if you're working indoors, like it really doesn't have, you know, any muster, that kind of argument. So um, yeah, they're not creative in terms of keeping this block in place, but they're very convincing. Um, they certainly make an appeal to the emotions. And again, it's about assuaging donors. A lot of them get backing from these airports and airports have been bailed out a lot. <laughs> and um, I don't know if we should reward them with continue, you know, reward them while they're engaging in bad behavior um, and, and not improving their services on their own. They don't need government to tell them how to improve their services. And I know that's probably being debated in FAA reauthorization as well. But if we're giving them money, and again, I don't agree with bailing them out or anything. They need to improve their services on their own and not have this expectation that government's going to bail them out. But in the place where government needs to weigh in on improvements like this slot and perimeter rule, that's where they can be active and, you know, force change and say, hey, we've bailed you out. Like, why are you not um, engaging in truly competitive practices? Like, should we question why we gave you money? Because you're keeping Delta and Southwest out of opportunities to expand their you know, destinations and, and, and their flights. So that has to also be called into question as well. Folks would be shocked, and we could go hours on this, but people really need to look up some stuff like the perimeter and slot rules, things like the gates set up. There is so many FAA regulations. These are from the 60s that we're dealing with here. It's just yeah. old regulation that's never been updated because nobody's updated. It would shock people how many problems in the airline industry just come from old regulations that have never been updated, but we'll say that for another day. I want you to take a second, though, before we let you go. Talk about what you have going on, because like we were joking about, you do have a lot of different projects going, your conservation stuff, your media appearances. Take a minute, let folks know what you got going on, what you're working on, some of those bigger projects you've been doing, and just update folks on you and where they can find you until we get you back on Hertel again. Absolutely. So I have been kind of all over the place this summer since we last spoke. Uh, I have been, we actually have, for your listeners in the D.C. metro area, I first want to mention this as part of Young Voices we have our regional event. We usually hold these quarterly um, every few months or so. And this upcoming session is going to be held in our region in the north, northeast or the mid-Atlantic. Um, it's hard to kind of typify what or define what we are. 
uh, but we'll call it the Northeast region. So we're having a school choice or education reform policy panel event in Old Town Alexandria, August 2nd. We're going to have some email blasters go out very soon. And this is going to be a great panel event. We are teaming up with Independent Women's Forum, where I also work with one of my colleagues there who handles the education portfolio, Ginny Gentiles, and is a leader in reforming education, promoting school choice. She will be moderating this panel with three exceptional thought leaders and experts in this field. We have someone from Americans for Prosperity, Virginia, CJ Saylor, who used to work with Governor Youngkin's administration. He was part of his grassroots. Now he's leading efforts um, on the grassroots level with AFP Virginia. We have um, an, a young activist who has benefited from school choice. And we also have uh, Christian Barnard, who is within the Young Voices Network from North Carolina, also a, a panelist as well. So we have a great lineup, great moderator, beautiful backdrop right on the near the waterfront in Old Town Alexandria. We have refreshments, food provided. Um, parking is really convenient. I can tell you where to park if you have questions. But I will send you, Andrew links to sign up in RSVP because if, if uh, demand is going to follow the interest, I think we could have a, a let's say a full house. And so you want to book early and reserve early because we may be uh, not sold out, but we may book up really quickly in terms of the capacity that we can fill. So August 2nd, 7 through 9, uh, sorry, 6 through 9 p.m. Old Town Alexandria school choice discussion. Hope you guys can come. And even more broadly, uh, gosh, I'll have more op-eds for Young Voices, so we're going to have to revisit more, of course, as it affects the region. Just traveling a lot. I alluded to this earlier. I'm traveling to Alaska. I'm filming about some conservation issues there for one of my clients, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, really wanting to understand what the lower 48 misunderstands and gets wrong about Alaska conservation issues and, and the model that they have there, because they know that responsible resource development works it's a boon for the economy, but they also want to ensure that their wild salmon and their wildlife and other natural resources are not depleted. They have something working there. They're not being able to realize their full potential under regulation that they are currently you know, facing from the Biden administration. So I'm wanting as a lower 48er to truly understand the model. I'll be filming two videos and I'll be posting some content from there. I uh, should be going some fish, uh, fishing in the Kenai Peninsula. I hope to see some wildlife safely from a distance. I'm not going to provoke any wildlife. I don't want to be eaten by a grizzly bear, but I'll be filming some great content. And uh, I, I know your followers and listeners can look forward to that. And just a lot of stuff coming through the pipeline. Um, Sarah Montalbano and I, I can't say where yet. I want to wait till it's published, but we have been, uh, we're going to be published very, very soon as sharing a byline for our work with independent women's forum in a very notable publication. One of my dream publications I've never been in. And you will see that very soon on a conservation issue. So it's really cool to have that opportunity. Be on the lookout for that on our social media. And then just continue to follow along. I have some great guests coming up on District of Conservation. We're speaking to Congressman Tom Tiffany. He is the chair of the Public Lands Federal Land Subcommittee in the House Natural Resources. I'll be talking again with Katie Pavlich, who just finished season two of her Luxury Hunting Lodges of America show. She's really on top of these conservation issues as well. We're going to speak to some experts with gun storage. Um, Secure It, I believe, is the company that I'm going to be talking to. And I'll be pushing a lot of great content in the coming months, especially as we go into the fall season. And I should be doing some more hunts. I may be doing an elk hunt in September, not confirmed yet, but possible. And some other outdoor opportunities. I get to have a little breathing room sometime in, starting in late September for like two months. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. And I'll be producing more content and vlogs from all these travels that I have as well.
Yeah, I got to get you up to West Virginia for golly season. Uh, yes. Heard tell you'll notice a lot of names, Christian Barnard, uh, Sarah Montabano. Those are all people that have been on the program before. We'll have to do something with Sarah when you all get done with that. We love having her on. Follow all that. We're going to put all those links uh, both on the show notes and on the Hertel Substack, Hertel.substack. You'll be able to find all that and where Gabby is. And make sure you check out her podcast. It is great stuff. Gabriella Hoffman, always enjoy the chat. We'll do it again soon if we can catch up with you wherever you are in your very, very busy travels. I have some pockets of opportunity, so we will absolutely find time to catch up. Thank you, Andrew. Fantastic. Thank you, ma'am. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do. Herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Herd Tell. We also have Herd Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive. So we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that. And also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Herd Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter for for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, 
exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.